beautiful and palatial UltimateSportsTalk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk show, our weekly Thursday night get-together to talk about what's happening in the world of sports and the Major League Baseball playoffs are the prime story here this evening. Game one of the American League Divisional Series between the Toronto Blue Jays and the Texas Rangers was played this afternoon, and we're going to talk about that, along with NFL football, what the Cleveland Browns are doing to make you laugh once again in our weekly soap opera saga, the Cleveland Browns under Mike Pettin, Ray Farmer, and Jimmy Haslam. The Cleveland Cavaliers are continuing their trek towards an NBA championship, and lots and lots more. Coming up on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. But first... Well, it was game one of the American League Divisional Series between the Texas Rangers and the Toronto Blue Jays this afternoon. And for the first time since Joe Carter's walk-off homer in the 1993 World Series, postseason baseball was played in Toronto. And before the game, the Blue Jays unveiled their 2015 American League East Championship banner at Rogers Center. Needless to say, the crowd was hepped up for this one. It's been a long time since they've seen postseason baseball. The ceremonial first pitch was thrown out by Cito Gaston, who managed the Blue Jays to those back-to-back World Series championships in 2002, or I should say in 1992 and 1993. The Rangers, though, they spoiled the party. They beat the Blue Jays in Game 1 by a final score of 5-3. to Texas now leads this best-of-five series one game to none. And a couple of things happened in this ball game that you're probably going to want to keep an eye out on as far as the rest of this season is concerned. First of all, Blue Jays third baseman Josh Donaldson was taken out of the ball game because he underwent a concussion, taking a knee to the head while breaking up a double play in the previous inning. Donaldson had drawn a walk to give the Blue Jays runners at first and second, and then he came up on a slide into second baseman Rugned Odnor, who leaped to get out of the way but caught Donaldson on the side of his head with a knee. Now, later on in the ballgame, Rangers third baseman Adrian Beltre had to leave with a strained back when he drove in the second run of that inning, and then he hobbled down to first base. He ended up leaving the ballgame in tears. Nonetheless, David Price took the loss in the game, and the Blue Jays now are down in this series one game to none to the Texas Rangers. The Houston Astros moved forward into a matchup with the Kansas City Royals beginning Friday after beating the New York Yankees Tuesday night 3 to nothing. Matt Snyder takes a look at the Astros' wildcard victory over the Yankees to advance to the ALDS. They did it in fashion that shouldn't be surprising if we've been watching the Astros all year. They hit some home runs, they stole a base that led to another run, and then Jose Altuve knocked him in with a base hit. Dallas Keuchel went out and dominated for six innings. The reason he only went six is because he was on three days rest. Getting up to 87 pitches, he started to look a little bit tired in the sixth inning. Before that, he was outstanding. He had retired 10 straight and only given up a single and a walk heading into that sixth inning before he started to tire a little bit. Still, they got only got two men on, runners on first and second, then he got a weak fly out from A-Rod, and that was that thread over. Outstanding outing by a Cy Young candidate in Dallas Keuchel. Kind of what you would expect, but you didn't know because of the short rest, and the Yankees can't hit the ball out of the ballpark. They're in their home stadium in the Bronx. Overall, though, the main point is we got to look forward, not look back. The Astros are now going forward in the playoffs. This is the first time ever in the American League playoffs, of course. The last time they were in the playoffs was 2005 when they were the National League representative in the World Series and were swept. That means this victory was their first postseason victory since winning the NLDS or NLCS in 2005. Pretty cool moment for Astros fans, especially considering everything they'd gone through in this rebuilding process, including 106 lost season, 107 lost season, and 111 lost season. That's all in the rear view now. Now you're on to the ALDS. And they will take on the Kansas City Royals beginning Friday afternoon. The Chicago Cubs last night 
took down the Pittsburgh Pirates in the National League wildcard game, 4 to nothing, and many people noticed as they won their first playoff game since the year 2003. Matt Snyder again reports on that matchup. It's unfortunate from the perspective of the Pirates because this is the second straight year they've been bounced in a, just a one-game playoff. Last year it wasn't nearly as big of a deal, though, because they didn't even win 90 games. This time around they won 98 games, second most in all the majors, and they don't even get to the divisional series round. That's got to leave a sour taste in their mouths, especially since they've been to the playoffs three years in a row with this Andrew McCutcheon-led core, and they still haven't been able to get to a league championship series. As for the game itself, it was pretty much all Cubs. Uh, Dexter Fowler started things off with a single, then he stole second, then Kyle Schwarber drove him, drove him in. Jake Arrieta got locked in early. Next time up, Dexter Fowler singled. Kyle Schwarber hit a monster bomb uh, out of the stadium. And from there, it just felt like the Cubs were in the driver's seat the whole time. Dexter Fowler added that home run. Arietta got into that bases-loaded jam a little bit later, but he got out of it with a double play ball. He got another double play ball later. We had the drama with the benches clearing, which was pretty silly. But, hey, maybe a lot of casual fans thought it was good drama. So it's probably not the worst thing in the world. Um... On that situation, you know, Arietta nicked Cervelli's finger. Uh, a breaking ball hit Josh Harrison and gave them two men on for Andrew McCutcheon. So obviously that wasn't on purpose. I, I could see if maybe the Pirates took exception to the location on the Cervelli pitch. And then the fact that a second guy got hit up and in, maybe they felt like they needed to retaliate. So, the, you know, they put it in uh, Arietta's backside. Uh, I, I wish Arietta would have just run to first, kind of like the whole you can't phase me thing. But... All's well that ends well. I don't ultimately think it was that big of a deal. Most of the focus should remain on the game itself. Now they head to the National League Division Series against the St. Louis Cardinals. Boy, isn't that one going to be fun. Not surprisingly, given the attention that the Cubs do garner nationwide, lots of fans tuned into that game. In fact, it was the largest audience for a Major League Baseball game on cable since 2011 and was the largest ever audience in the wild card series, which started in 2012. Furthermore, the Chicago ratings showed the highest for a Major League Baseball game in that market since the White Sox won the World Series in 2005. Via a Turner Sports release, TBS broadcast the game. The peak audience on Tuesday night was 9.7 million people with an average attendance of 8.3 million. The last time a cable audience was so high was Game 5 of the National League Divisional Series between the Cardinals and the Phillies in 2011. Los Angeles Dodgers ace Clayton Kershaw will get the starting nod for Game 1 of the NLDS tomorrow. Kershaw will be going up against New York Mets starter Jacob deGrom on Friday. In the 2015 season series, the Mets won four out of seven games. However, expect Kershaw to dominate on the mound for L.A. At least that's what Dodger fans are hoping for because Kershaw has not really been all that good in postseason play. Kershaw, though, did go 11-1 with a 1.22 ERA along with four complete games in the final 17 starts that he had this season. So he's on fire and... The Mets are hoping he can be stopped. However, the Mets' offense has only managed two runs in their last four regular season contests. New York just can't seem to find their offense right now, but they need to get that going tomorrow afternoon. In the final week of the regular season, as teams jockeyed for postseason invitations and playoff seedings, Commissioner Rob Manfred headed to Mexico. The commissioner was looking to find baseball's next great growth markets. And on Monday, Manfred was back in his office in New York. He joined Doug Gottlieb of CBS Sports to discuss Pete Rose being hired as a baseball commentator by Fox, possible reinstatement, and his Hall of Fame eligibility. Well, um, you know, first of all, Fox was very courteous with us about this issue, um, you know, we were well aware that, that they were talking to Pete and, and that they were going to hire him as an analyst. And, um, you know, I really didn't have a, an objection to that. Pete's a very knowledgeable um, baseball person. Um, clearly, you know, if you spend four or five days in Cincinnati like I did at the All-Star Game, you understand he's a very popular individual um, in certain parts of the country. Um, I, and, you know, the ban that's in place 
Um, I think of it as functional, Doug, and, and, and let me tell you what I mean by that word. Uh, you know, Pete is on the permanently ineligible list in baseball because um, Commissioner Giamatti was of the view that him working in the game in a way that could affect any, in any way the play of the game on the field was inappropriate from an integrity perspective. Those sorts of concerns which underlie the ban from baseball really don't apply to someone who is a commentator on baseball games. So I kind of um, came to the view that, like everyone else, he ought to be allowed the opportunity to earn a living. Have your views evolved in terms of his inclusion in baseball in order to get him into the Hall of Fame? Um, well, let me say this. Um, and, you know, I have a commitment to Pete that I'm going to decide this issue by the end of the year and also a commitment that I'm not going to talk about the merits. The one point I will make, because I don't believe it's really talking about uh, Pete in particular, there are two different issues, right? Um, the issue that's in front of me is, um, given his history and, and the facts as we know them, is it appropriate to allow Pete to the opportunity to work in the game in a way that could affect to play the game on the field. That's one issue. That's the one that's in front of me. Eligibility for the Hall of Fame is an issue for the Hall of Fame. That's really an issue that they control. Um, I am a member of the Hall of Fame board, but um, it, it is a separate body that, that controls the Hall of Fame issue. So there's really two distinct issues. Okay, so, so he could get into the Hall uh, conceivably, he could get into the Hall of Fame even though he's still on the ban list? Well, the current rule that the Hall of Fame has is that if you're on the permanently ineligible list, is the correct name of the list, you are not eligible for the Hall of Fame. Okay? Even if I left him on the permanently ineligible list in order to protect the integrity of the game, it would be within the purview of the Hall of Fame to change its eligibility rules to allow him to be voted. And Gottlieb appeared to be just incredulous about that revelation. Mark Donahue and I have been talking about it for several years now on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show every Monday night at 9 o'clock. That's a shameless promotion there. But nonetheless, we've been talking about it for several years. The Hall of Fame could just easily change their rules and invite Pete Rose to be in the Hall of Fame. They could do that. They've, they've got the power to do it. They could do it. They could bring him up for a vote. Whether or not he would get the vote, that's another story. But secondly, then Major League Baseball would not have to take him off of the banned list. I, I think that that would be just a great compromise. Allow Pete Rose into the Hall of Fame. Now, another thing I've always said is that Major League Baseball could actually hire Pete Rose as a consultant to go around to minor league camps and talk to people, talk to these players about the mistake of gambling on Major League Baseball games. They could do that, and that would be a perfect scenario for Pete Rose. But Pete's 75 years old now. This is a, a, a thing that Major League Baseball could actually get around the entire controversy, which has gone on now for over 20 years, just simply by, as you heard Manfred say, he's on the board of the Hall of Fame. He could put it before the Hall of Fame committee to go ahead and allow Pete to be placed into the Hall of Fame. I think that would be a genuine compromise as far as what this could, this entire story and how it could end this story if that would just happen. Very interesting football game going on tonight on the NFL. Of course, their annual, I should say annual, I guess, the weekly football game that happens every Thursday night. This one on CBS. Later on in the year, it will be on the NFL Network. But the Indianapolis Colts are heading into Houston to take on the Texans. And the reason that this thing is very interesting is because both teams are under a quarterback problem heading into this one. The Indianapolis Colts are going to start their backup and 40-year-old backup, Matt Hasselbeck, to take the place of Andrew Luck. Why? Because Andrew Luck is still suffering from the effects of that separated right shoulder. Meanwhile, the Houston Texans, they can't figure out who they want to start at quarterback. Do they want to go with Ryan Mallett or Brian Hoyer? They don't know. 
Last week they went with Hoyer. Two weeks ago they went with Ryan Mallett. I'm not sure who they're going to go with tonight, but it's going to be quite a football game between the Indianapolis Colts and the Houston Texans. As I do, I pick every game that we talk about during the week, and in this one, I've got to go with the Houston Texans. I think they're going to win this football game in front of their hometown crowd, and the Colts, without Andrew Luck, are in complete disarray. I take the Texans. That game's on CBS. It will begin about an hour and 15 minutes from now, around 8.30, as I said, on CBS. Uh, here we go, continuing on with the soap opera known as the Cleveland Browns. Things just have not worked out well for 2014 number 8 overall pick Justin Gilbert as a cornerback. But now the Browns are leaking it out that there could be a change in position in store for Gilbert. He's been buried on the depth chart, even though Mike Pettin says there is no depth chart for the Browns. He's been buried on that depth chart, but despite his lofty draft status, with Gilbert unable to surpass a player who was selected three rounds after him in Pierre Desir, and another who wasn't even drafted at all in 2014, K1 Williams, the Browns have been giving Gilbert some practice reps at wide receiver, a position that GM Ray Farmer says is overrated, and the Browns really don't need one. Nonetheless, they've put their number eight overall pick and number one pick last year at the receiver position. Coach Mike Pettin explains why. Yeah, that's he's, he's shown that certainly with the um, with the kickoff returns the the other day. Um, yeah, I mean that's he's we've sometimes with the numbers and injuries we've had to throw him on offense at, uh, at wide receiver and, and, and doesn't look uh, doesn't look out of place. Uh, but just given the depth we have at that position now, and then you add, you add Duke, who, who has wideout type ability, you had you have Hausler, who has wideout type ability in certain situations. That's that's hard to hard to justify it. But he's he's certainly shown the ability, uh, as you say, when he's got the ball in his hand, he can do something with it. <laughs> I'm having a tough time justifying why Justin Gilbert is even on the team. This guy doesn't work hard. He doesn't care. He's got no intensity, no work ethic. His character is questionable. And he's got a guaranteed contract that he knows the Browns have to pay out no matter if they cut him, waive him, keep him on the team. It doesn't matter to him. He's got a five-year guaranteed contract. He gets his money no matter what. So the Browns are trying to sell this guy to the fans that he could be a possible wide receiver. I would have rather seen Terrell Pryor stay with this team and work out at the wide receiver position or the tight end spot. No. The Browns, they've decided to just go with Justin Gilbert, supposedly as a kick return specialist and a possible wide receiver in certain situations. The Browns are playing this weekend in Baltimore against the Ravens. That's at 1 o'clock on CBS. I don't even think I have to predict this game, but if you want me to go out on a limb and say who's going to win, as much as I hate this, the Ravens are going to win this football game. Now, in other games at 1 o'clock on CBS, the Jacksonville Jaguars are in Tampa Bay to take on the Buccaneers. I'm taking the Buccaneers to win that one. The Rams will be in Green Bay to play the Packers. I've got the Packers winning that game. And the Buffalo Bills go to Tennessee to take on the Titans. I have got Rex Ryan and the Buffalo Bills winning that one. On games on Fox at 1 o'clock, the Chicago Bears are in Kansas City to play the Chiefs. I pick the Kansas City Chiefs, to win that one. Also on Fox, the Seattle Seahawks are in Cincinnati to play the Bengals. That one should be a barn burner. And CBS Sports NFL analysts Pete Prisco and Pat Kerwin break down the keys for the Seahawks and the Bengals ahead of this Sunday's Week 5 showdown in Cincinnati. Pat, the Bengals off to a fast start, 4-0, and Andy Dalton is playing his best football. Andy is on fire, and you know what? He's got an awful lot of experience for now, playoffs, etc. But he's got weapons, and the uh, the explosion of Jeremy Hill for starters in the run game, seven rushing touchdowns. But it's Tyler Eifert to me has opened up that field. We talk about it every week, and they're not able to stop it, even when he doesn't have a lot of catches. They have reconfigured how they're going to play him, and that's going to take Cam Chancellor right into the mix on Tyler Eifert and leave people outside. So I think Andy Dalton's going to get a lot of opportunities against a team that I call Bad Road Team. 
Pete Carroll's 19 and 23 out on the highway there, Pete. Yeah, and you know what? The other thing about the Bengals, Pat, is they're really good on the offensive line, but a team that's not really good on the offensive line, the Seattle Seahawks, they're really struggling up front. And Russell Wilson's taken a ton of shots. We don't know if Marshawn Lynch will go this week. Thomas Rawls did some good things for the Bengals, I mean, for the Seahawks, but this is a tough defense to run against. Geno Atkins is playing fantastic football in the middle. I think Cincinnati's got a, probably the best combination of lines in the league. In Seattle, if you want to run the football this week, which you know they want to do, they better get Geno Atkins blocked, and they better get better up front on that offensive line, Pat. I don't think they'll get him blocked. You go look at where the young guys are, and they'll get Atkins over some inexperienced rookie or second-year player, and they're giving up sacks now at one every nine pass plays. How long can uh, really Russell Wilson's magic go on? I don't think it's going to go very well here. Although Pete's been pretty good on the East Coast. Generally, they're not a good travel team. Coming off Monday night, heading East, I don't like it. I think they get caught in this one because I do think the Bengals, they average 27 points a game against these NFC teams that come in their house. So let's say they only get to 20 because Seattle's defense is great. I don't think Seattle can get to 20 points on offense. So I think it's going to be a 21-20, 21-19, something like that. But Seattle's going to go home with their tail between their legs. Yeah, and I'm with you. I, I think Cincinnati's the pick here, uh, and Brady agrees. We all like Cincinnati across the board. This is a good Cincinnati team. This is a benchmark game for them. Nobody believes in them yet, Pat. They win this game. People are going to start believing again. Yeah, I, they're up in that, that top five group, and they're going to stay there all year. I think I, they're just too much talent. And they'll slip and fall. Who, who's going to go undefeated anymore? But I think this is a team that's heading towards 13 wins, to say the least. And I think they get after Russell Wilson uh, and make his life miserable. Yeah. I do think Lynch will play, though. I feel sorry for Russell Wilson. He's taken a lot of shots, too many, yes. almost. I don't know if I agree that Russell Wilson has taken a lot of shots in this early season. I really don't agree with that, but I think they do need to go with Lynch a little bit more in order to get back into the mode that has brought them two consecutive Super Bowl appearances. Still in all, Seattle at Cincinnati, I've got to go with the Bengals to win this football game. I do think the Bengals are probably the second best team in the AFC, a team that could go unbeaten. Not according to these guys, but a team that I think could go unbeaten, not Cincinnati, but the New England Patriots, and they're going to play on the road later on in this Sunday, this week five of NFL football. I'm taking the Bengals to win the game against the Seahawks. Now, elsewhere on Fox at 1 o'clock, the Atlanta Falcons will host the Redskins. The Falcons have the premier offense in the NFL today. And who's their offensive coordinator Oh, my gosh, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, he was the guy that was in Cleveland last year and couldn't get anything going. Nonetheless, the Falcons to win this game over the Redskins. Elsewhere on Fox, the Eagles host the Saints. As much as I'd like to pick the Saints because I don't like the Eagles, I'm going with the Philadelphia Eagles in that football game. Now, the 405 start on Fox. The Arizona Cardinals go to Detroit. This one is one of two upset specials that I have on Sunday. I'm taking the Lions to win this game in front of the Ford Field fans in Detroit on Sunday afternoon at 4.05. On 4.25, two games. The New England Patriots are in Dallas to take on the Cowboys. I cannot see any scenario that a team directed by Brandon Whedon would beat a team directed by Bill Belichick. So I am going with the New England Patriots to win this game on the road. And also at 425 on CBS, the Denver Broncos are in Oakland to take on the Raiders. John Clayton said earlier this week that the top three teams in the NFL, the AFC, I should say, are the New England Patriots, the Denver Broncos, and the Cincinnati Bengals. I think you flip-flop the Bengals and the Broncos. And I think the Broncos are going to fall even further after this Sunday's game. I'm taking the Raiders to win this game in Oakland, believe it or not. I've got the Raiders to defeat the Denver Broncos on Sunday. The Sunday night game on NBC at 8.30 is San Francisco in New York to take on the Giants. I've got the Giants to win that game. And the Monday night game of the week, Pittsburgh will be in San Diego taking on the Chargers. I've got Pittsburgh losing. That game to the Chargers, I think the Chargers, even though they're coming off a last-second victory over the Cleveland Browns last week, I think that they will come back and defeat the Pittsburgh Steelers, who are playing their second consecutive game with Michael Vick at quarterback. The Chargers to win that one. And a sad news out of the NFL today, Lindy Infante, the former head coach of the Green Bay Packers and Indianapolis Colts, 
died today after a lengthy illness. He was 75 years old. Infante was a head coach for six years in the NFL, compiling a 36-60 and record, but he was the NFL Coach of the Year in 1989 with Green Bay, and that was his only postseason appearance. Infante also had a stint as offensive coordinator for the Cleveland Browns from 1986 through 1987. That was when Bernie Kosar was the quarterback, and the Browns had one of the best offenses in the NFL. That's why he got his head coaching gigs. He was known as a shrewd play caller, and after he left, it led Marty Schottenheimer, the coach of the Browns back then, to say, play calling is overrated. Well, Marty found out that play calling was not that overrated. Well, there's some college football action going on tonight. Let's take a look at the top 25 college football schedule for this weekend. And number 17, USC, is a 17-point favorite, and they will host the Washington Huskies tonight at 9 o'clock on ESPN. That's where you can catch that game. Washington 2-2 two and two on the year. Southern Cal, the number 17 team in the country, they're 3-1 and one on the year. As I said, that's on ESPN at 9 o'clock. Now let's go to the Saturday afternoon games, where number one Ohio State, 5-0 and on the year, fresh off their big victory over Indiana on Saturday, will host Maryland. They are 2-3 and on the year. The Buckeyes are 33-point favorites. You can catch that game at noon on the Big Ten Network. Elsewhere in the Big Ten at noon on ESPNU, Illinois, 4-1. and Boy, did they have a big win over Nebraska last Saturday. They are going to be going into Iowa to take on the unbeaten Hawkeyes. The Hawkeyes are now 22nd ranked in the top 25, and they are 11-point favorites over the Illini. Also at noon on Fox Sports 1, number 3 Baylor, 4-0, and will be at 0-4, Kansas and Baylor, a 44-point favorite in that one. Also at noon on the SEC Network, New Mexico State, winless on the year, goes to 4-1 and and 14th-ranked Ole Miss. That game starts at noon, and Ole Miss is a 43-point favorite. At noon also on ABC, number 10, Oklahoma, 4-0 and on the year, goes to 1-4 and Texas. And, of course, Texas in a lot of uproar right now, so we'll see what happens with them. But Oklahoma is in Texas. And who would have thunk it? The 24th ranked team in the country right now is out of the Mid-American Conference. The Toledo Rockets, 4-0 and on the year. They, of course, beat Arkansas earlier this year and Brett Bielema. They are entertaining Kent State at 2-3 and on the season. The Rockets are a 15-point favorite, and that game is at 3 o'clock on ESPN3. At 3.30 on Saturday afternoon on ABC, Georgia Tech will be at number 6 Clemson. Clemson unbeaten 4-0 after their victory over Notre Dame on Saturday night. And on the Big Ten Network at 3.30, it's Northwestern taking on the Michigan Wolverines. Now, Michigan is 4-1 and on the year and 18th ranked. And college football writer for CBS Sports Tom Fornelli believes that at this point in the season, Michigan is the best team in the Big Ten Conference. Funny thing happened while I was trying to figure out whether or not Ohio State actually deserves to be ranked number one right now. It dawned on me that Ohio State's not even the best team in its own conference. No, after looking a bit closer, I came to the conclusion that Michigan is actually the best team in the Big Ten right now, thanks in large part to what has been a dominant defense. In its last four games, Michigan has outscored its opponents 122-14 to as they shut out its last two games. That means it hasn't given up a single point in the last 30 possessions that it's been on the field. Now, I'm not saying Michigan is a perfect team. It has flaws. Its offense can best be described as competent. They've turned the ball over nine times in five games, and thankfully for the Wolverines, the defense has been so good that it's bailed them out, forcing seven turnovers of its own, and at least stopping the other team from being able to take advantage of those turnovers. Still, I worry that at some point down the road, that will catch up to Michigan. But right now, comparing the Wolverines to Ohio State and Michigan State, two teams that seem to be sleepwalking through easier schedules, Michigan is the best team in the Big Ten. 
But I don't think it's all that close. Well, that makes a great story, but I'm not so sure that Michigan is actually better than Ohio State or Michigan State right now. Do I think they're going to improve? Yes. Do I think they're the number 18 team in the country? Yes. But I don't think they're anywhere near the caliber of Michigan State or Ohio State. But the Wolverines are going to be at home at 3.30 Saturday afternoon, and you can see that game on the Big Ten Network. They are going to be playing at number 13 Northwestern at 5-0 and on the year. Michigan is a 7.5-point favorite in the Big House, but don't count out Northwestern in this game. On NBC at 3.30, the home of Notre Dame, the Fighting Irish, number 15, losing their first game of the year last Saturday night at Clemson. They're 4-1, and one, and they will entertain the unbeaten Naval Academy in South Bend. Also coming up on Saturday afternoon at 3.30, this game on ESPN. It's a game that has been moved due to the flooding in South Carolina. This weekend's game between the South Carolina Gamecocks and the LSU Tigers is going to be played in Baton Rouge. This game could have an impact on the outcome of the SEC because now LSU will have five home games this year. Taryn Schaefer and Matthew Coco discuss this move. It makes it a little more difficult for this South Carolina team because now they, they thought they were going to have this home game. They thought they were going to have the crowd behind them. But now they have to go on the road to Death Valley and play LSU in Baton Rouge, which makes things a way more difficult because you don't have that crowd behind you. There's nobody there to kind of hype you up. You thought you were playing at home. Now you have to pack all your stuff up and you have to hit the road. Yeah, yeah, the game is going to be played. They announced the time on Wednesday. It's going to be 3.30 Eastern time. And the South Carolina Athletic Director, he had a statement that said, with all that has happened here in the state of South Carolina, in the city of Columbia, football is not nearly as important or important at all when you think about it in that perspective. Uh, Coach Spurrier, he kind of backed that up, basically saying, you know, we have to do what's right for the community. Yeah, absolutely. And it's good to see that, you know, this South Carolina team has been behind the community. They've really helped out the community. We'll show a little something about that later. But now they have to focus on football, and that's going to be tough because a lot of these South Carolina players are from South Carolina, so you don't know if anything's really affected their, their friends, their families, their communities. So it's going to be really tough, and now they have to try and stop Leonard Fournette, which could be you know, a harder uh, – it's a hard task. Yeah, it's a very hard task <laughs> to, do, to do something like that. But I wouldn't put it past this team to kind of rise to the occasion and upset this LSU team in Baton Rouge just because they have something to play for now. Yeah, yeah, you've seen it time and time again. The underdog comes in after a tragedy or, you know, adversity mm -hmm. and comes from behind and wins it. But um, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. And LSU... Okay, if everyone remembers the beginning of the season, their first game was canceled due to weather, due to Mother Nature. Mm -hmm. And now here, they're picking up a fifth conference home game. How much of an advantage is this? Well, we still don't know who this LSU team is because we don't know their true identity. Because if they're going to have to give the football to Leonard Fournette close to 30 times a game, and he's going to have to play in the fourth quarter of games against a team like Eastern Michigan, then we don't really know who this team is. So they're going to need all the home games that they can get because the two road games they play are against Alabama, and I'm pretty sure the other one's against either an Ole Miss or a Texas A&M. So they're going to have to play top competition on the road where they're going to need all the games at home that they can get. Yeah, and you better bet that everyone's eyes in the conference are on this. Even Coach uh, Hugh Freeze from Ole Miss had a statement. He was asked on Wednesday, and he said, of course, it's an advantage to play five home games in the league, but when tragedy strikes, you pitch in. And then Coach Les Miles, I loved his comment. He said, as long as they tell us where it's at and when to play, we'll show up with a quality itinerary. <laughs> yes, that's the type of attitude that you want from your coach because it's going to leak down to the players. So you know that this LSU team is going to be really hyped up. They get another game at home, kind of show off for the fans. So it's, it's good for everybody. Yeah, it's easy to have a quality itinerary when you get that extra home game. So LSU will be the visiting team on the scoreboard but that's being played on their home field. I hate to be an I told you so, but I told you so. 
Georgia is not a national championship contender. They are a national championship pretender. They're a pretender in the SEC. And as long as Mark Richt is there, I certainly hope that Georgia continues to keep Mark Richt as coach because he is a shoe-in to go 9-3 and three every year. That's what he is. He's a shoe-in. He's the John Cooper of the 2000s. And after their loss to Alabama last week, and I picked it, 4-1 and one on the year, Georgia will be in Tennessee taking on the 2-3 and three Tennessee Volunteers under Butch Jones. And when that is going on, well, Georgia's hopes of an SEC championship hinge upon this game. Again, Taryn Schaefer and Matthew Coca discuss this game. Both coming off losses, but that means that this could be a pretty big game for Georgia in particular. Well, it's a little bigger for Georgia just because Tennessee can play spoiler in this game. Because if Tennessee wins this game, then it's going to be real hard for this Georgia team to rebound and kind of go for that SEC East championship to get to the SEC championship game. Yeah, and uh, Coach Mark Rick said this week, he pointed out that Alabama and Ole Miss both have a loss, so he thinks that a one-loss team will win the SEC as a whole. So Georgia still has a chance. Yeah, Georgia does. They need to look good in this game. They need to look real confident, and they need to give the ball to Nick Chubb ultimately because he is their best weapon on offense. But as far as Tennessee goes, this Tennessee team is a couple plays away from being 5-0 and and undefeated on the season. So it's not like they're not a good team. It's just they've lost unfortunate games because they haven't really played the, the fourth quarter. Yeah, so let's talk about the quarterback matchup that we have in this game. We have Grayson Lambert going up against Josh Dobbs. Both are juniors. On paper, Lambert does look better than Dobbs. On paper, correct. But when you watch them play, Joshua Dobbs is Tennessee's offense. It all flows through him. The only way that their running back, Jalen Hurd, kind of gets going is if Dobbs can get some sort of air attack going, which he hasn't really been able to do because you can see that 57% completion percentage is not going to get anything done. No defense is, you know, is going to really respect your pass game when your quarterback is only completing close to half of his passes. Yeah, and in their loss against Florida, Dobbs became the first player since 2003 to lead his team in passing, rushing, and receiving yards in the same game. So he can't just do it all. Yeah, you can't win games when your quarterback is the best running back, receiver, and passer on your team in one game. But as far as you know, Georgia goes, Grayson Lambert needs to come out and he needs to control the offense a little better. He can't keep getting pulled in big games for Bryce Ramsey to come in and take over because we saw what Bryce Ramsey did in that game. His first pass of the second half was intercepted by an Alabama defensive back return for a touchdown. So Grayson Lambert needs to show that he really is the starter of this team and he doesn't want to lose this job. You know, the completion percentage is good. His his passer rating has been off the charts this season. But like I said, they really didn't play one of those top-tier defenses. And when they finally played against Alabama, he had a really tough time, you know, finding some sort of rhythm. And if Isaiah McKenzie is out this week, we still don't know. They're, that's just another target that he loses. Well, this Georgia-Tennessee game will be played on CBS, and that will be at 3.30. Also, at 7 o'clock on ESPN, Arkansas will be at number 8 Alabama, rounding out the top 25 college football schedule for Saturday. Also at 7 o'clock on CBS Sports Live, it's number 25 Boise State at Colorado State. At 7 o'clock on ESPN2, number 21 Oklahoma State, unbeaten on the year, will be at 3-1 and West Virginia. At 7.30 on Fox, TCU, the number two team in the country, at 5-0, and will play at Kansas State, 3-1 and on the year. At 7.30 on the SEC Network, number 11 Florida, unbeaten also, will be at 4-1 Missouri. At 8 o'clock on ABC, 3-1 Miami of Florida goes to number 12 and unbeaten Florida State at 4-0. On the Big Ten Network at 8 o'clock, number 4 Michigan State, also unbeaten at 5-0, is at number, well, unranked Rutgers. They are 2-2 two two on the year. And I can't believe that Michigan State is only a 14-point favorite in that one. And finally, on ESPN on Saturday night at 10 o'clock, number 23 California, 5-0 and on the year, goes to number 5 Utah at 4-0 and on the year. That one should be quite a game.
Well, the Cleveland Cavaliers are playing their second preseason game in as many nights as they traveled into the city of brotherly love tonight to take on the Philadelphia 76ers. Tip-off was just a few minutes ago. The Cavaliers dropped their first game of the 2015 preseason schedule last night, 98-96 to the Atlanta Hawks in front of a packed house at the Cintas Center in Cincinnati, Ohio, home of the Xavier Musketeers. The Cavs dished out 28 assists on 35 made field goals, meaning they moved the ball pretty well. J.R. Smith tallied a team-high 15 points on 6 of 10 shooting from the field, including 3 of 5 from 3-point range, 4 rebounds, 4 assists, 1 steal, and 2 blocks in 22 minutes of action for J.R. Smith. Cavs coach David Blatt spoke to the media after the game about the team moving the ball effectively in their first preseason game. First of all, I thought we moved the ball. I think you all saw that. We've made a concentrated effort coming in to really work on uh, uh, improving our, our ball and body movement and our continuity. I, I thought we did that tonight. Uh, I, thought we, I thought we had a lot of good looks, you know, that the ball didn't go down. Three-point shots are good and a dangerous thing. you got to make more than you miss or at least 40% of them if you're going to take that many. But, I mean, they were good looks. We weren't taking bad shots. We had 28 assists, so obviously the ball was moving. Our guys played hard. I thought they played right. And for us, that was a pretty good uh, pretty good game as, as we planned, minutes-wise and, and uh, uh, lineup, roster-wise. You know, we, we, we did what we wanted to do. You know, I can, can't say I'm happy that we didn't win it in the end. But on the other hand, you know, we came out of that game pretty much with exactly what we wanted. Did you guys have trouble with the uh, pick and roll sort of in the second half? Well, maybe a little bit. You know, they, they, they scored 96 points, so defensively overall we were we were pretty solid. Just needed to make a few more shots. Are you hopeful you can put more of this, your thumbprint, the offense that you like to run and you have run in the past? Can you, can you implement more of that this year? You know, I, again, I, I thought we played the way today that I want to see us play. You know, bought, uh, with the exception of a few things. I, I was happy with the way that we moved with the way the ball moved and with the way that uh, the team played together. You guys only shot two free throws in like the first two and a half quarters. Yeah. Is that a, too many shots or just not getting into the rim or just being uh, three or what? I, I think we could have, you know, we could have got the ball downhill a little bit more and attacked the rim. And, and you know, certainly we could have passed it inside a bit more. But it seemed like we were getting the shots that, that almost that we sort of wanted to. And, Maybe we settled a little bit too much, but but again, overall for the first game and the first go around against a, a good a good opponent too. You know, I, I think I think we played I think we played right. Thought we played pretty good. How about that play by the senior muscle number you took at the end of the third quarter? Richard. Yeah, that and LeBron Selfie were the highlights of the game. <laughs> Without a doubt. Which I think uh, Sasha looked first real NBA action. I think I thought I thought he did well. Thought he was competitive. He did the things that we know he can do. Uh, I'm sure that, uh, like for me, this is new for him. Like for me last year, this is new for him. He's going to have to get used to finishing around the rim with with bigger and longer bodies, and he will. He's a smart kid. With the ball zipping around like it was today, was, was that a point of emphasis for you? Uh, to Since day one. Since day one, Chris. Does having players that you've had more time with make it a lot easier to install the offense? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. And the good coaching staff that I got with me who work on that stuff every day. When did his time with the four starters around him? I thought Quinn did well. I thought Jared played extremely well. I was happy with him. Austin came in and gave us a nice lift at a certain point. Uh, Chris did it. You know, again, our, our our camp guys that, that have come in have not only practiced well, but I thought they played well tonight. They, they, they did a nice job. They really did. And keep in mind, Kyrie Irving did not play last night. Kevin Love did not play last night. And Tristan Thompson did not play last night because he is still a holdout, and there is no end to this contract stalemate in sight between the Cavs and Thompson. Still in all, the Cavaliers put up a good showing. And tonight, as I said, they're playing in Philadelphia, and the Cavaliers are leading at the end of the first period, 31-24 to over the Sixers. Anderson Vrajao, who's coming back after, of course, the ankle injury that he had, uh, breaking, well, 
actually tearing his Achilles heel. He's got 10 points in the first quarter, three rebounds, and one assist in that game so far. Cavaliers leading by seven at the end of the first quarter in Philadelphia. Well, last week, Kevin Durant responded to reports that the Los Angeles Lakers are his primary objective and landing spot should he choose not to resign with the Oklahoma City Thunder this year by saying that the generator of those reports, who was none other than ESPN commentator Stephen A. Smith, hadn't spoken to him, his family, or his friends on the matter, and that Smith was lying and making up stories. Smith offered a response of sorts via Twitter on Friday. He said that he never claimed he had spoken to Durant, any members of his family, or any of his teammates about his free agency, reaffirming that he'd heard from folks that I know. Smith could have stood on that statement and just forgotten about it, but instead he reopened the floor on Monday's episode of First Take, launching into an 11-minute monologue on his journalistic integrity. Here's a portion of that tirade. I'm incredibly happy that this happened on a Friday because I will openly confess to you that had I had to come on the air that next day Mm -hmm. after reading somebody questioning my credibility and my character, Mm -hmm. I can promise you it would have been very bad. Kevin Durant is the one that's lying. That statement that he came out with, that was a surprise to me because I had no idea that he had any kind of problem with me whatsoever. Okay? I wasn't aware of it, so it was news to me. That's point number one. Point number two is what it comes down to is that Kevin Durant is trying to put me in some kind of jacket or whatever the case may be. Let me be very, very clear. My brother, it does not fit. You are in no position to question my credibility whatsoever. A matter of fact, one would argue what position are you in to question the credibility of anybody in the media, particularly when the last time we really heard you say anything of significance, it was when you were addressing the media or undressing the media in February and telling them, you guys really don't know bleep. To be honest, man, I'm only here talking to y'all because I have to. So I really don't care. Y'all not my friends. Y'all going to write what you want to write. You're going to say what you're what you going to love us one day and hate us the next. That's part of it. So I just had to learn how to deal with it. Kevin Durant said that in response to idiotic questions, he felt the media was asking him about head coach Scott Brooks. And his potential tenure, because Scott Brooks obviously took them to the playoffs, won over 65 percent of the games, was doing a fabulous job, at least in Kevin Durant's mind, so much so that the year before Kevin Durant said, hey, I think this guy should be the coach of the year. So he deemed the questions ridiculous. That was in February. What happened in April, Skip? Scott Brooks was fired. Okay, and now Billy Donovan is coaching. So those same people that you were talking about, those same people you labeled essentially idiotic, although to your credit you got wise and came back and apologized, ultimately you showed your true feelings. It's like somebody that's a bit inebriated, somebody that's really speaking their mind and their heart, and then they want to turn back and say, well, you know what, we really apologize. When you really, really didn't mean to, you just upset that the heat that came your way was something that you couldn't deal with. He also went on to say, Nobody that I know really talks to him. Well, his own mother was on this show. Um, His brother Tony is somebody that I've ran across on many occasions. And the last point that I would like to make is that if nobody speaks to me, then maybe you need to check with folks in your inner circle again and ask, why did I receive phone calls? So evidently you're wrong about that, too. Now let's get to the nitty gritty and let's talk about what's really going on. I sit here today incredibly offended by the personal attack that this man has put against me. Even in the midst of all of that, his family is wonderful. He's wonderful. There's nothing negative that I have to say about this person as a human being. I am addressing what he said about me. I am not attacking Kevin Durant. As I said on my own Twitter account, 
a response to him. The game is better when he's playing. The reality is, is that, number one, you don't know who I talk to. Number two, if I'm so wrong, why haven't you not signed an extension with the Oklahoma City to stay for years and years to come? Is it not you that alluded to how you're willing to entertain free agency? Are you trying to tell me you're not going to consider the second largest market in the United States of America, particularly with Kobe Bryant's schedule to depart? That's that, and it's clearly a home that Russell Westbrook, who starred at UCLA, might not mind going to a year after you go, if indeed that were the case. All of these things that I said make absolute sense. At no time did I say that I spoke to Kevin Durant. At no time did I say that I spoke to people in this inner circle. I recall an individual by the name of LeBron James who wasn't speaking to anybody, but who broke the story that he was going to South Beach. Mm -hmm. Since when do I need to sit there and speak to people that you deem trustworthy individuals to find out what is going on with you? Which brings me to the issue, issue that I unapologetically, not shy about it, and more than willing to address. Mm -hmm. Let me say this, because I know that we as reporters don't like to say this because it comes across as, you know, a bit boisterous or whatever the case may be. My career spans 20 plus years. How many reporters do you know has broken as many stories as I have? All of these folks that want to talk about me, Washington Post picking up the story, USA Today picking up the story, reputable publications. I'm not calling out anybody. I'm just addressing people who are willing to call me out. Are we willing to put my resume up against the people who talk about me? I welcome that. I know it's not popular to say, but this thing, this thought process that says, hey, well, you know what? He's just somebody who runs his mouth. I don't show up at NBA arenas. I'm not on the road. I'm not inside of those locker rooms. And more importantly, what I would like to ask Kevin Durant and some of the brothers who talk behind my back in the NBA that probably put him up to something stupid like this. Let me ask a question. Do you really want me to come out of this seat and go back on the scene? Do you really want to see me in an NBA arena? Because I can assure you I find out more in 10 minutes than I can get from 50 phone calls. I have proven it. Now, we can sit up here. We can debate all day long till the cows come home. I will put I am a black man on national television with a big mouth. And I will still stand up here today and I will put my resume spanning 22 plus years up against anybody in this industry. We really want to go here. We really want to start something with me. You sure about that? I just want people to think about that. But the level of sensitivity that Charles Barkley and so many others have alluded to is growing quite alarming mm -hmm. because somehow, some way, everything is personalized. And it's got to the point where it's utterly ridiculous. Kevin Durant is the last person on earth that should be going off on the media like that. Not that he's done anything wrong because the guy is a great person. And I still stand here and say that at this moment in time, the NBA is better mm -hmm. when Kevin Durant is around. He's a phenomenal person, not just a player. But the guy and the sensitivity that these guys display, the way they are on attack, somebody needs to tell them, it's time you pump the brakes. We don't have to talk to you to talk about you. You want to start something? That's just not the wise thing to do. What story did Stephen A. Smith actually break? That Kevin Durant was thinking of going to the Lakers, or that would be his primary spot? Well, if he really didn't talk to anybody, how in the world would he know that that was the primary landing spot of Kevin Durant? And have you ever heard anybody sound so pompous, so self-adoring? He needs to turn it down a notch. He is not God's gift to reporting. Anybody can learn more by talking to several people in a span of 10 minutes than they can making 50 phone calls. First of all, you can't make 50 phone calls in 10 minutes. Let's just call it, call it what it is. But even if you could make 50 phone calls in 10 hours, you're certainly going to learn more speaking to 10 individuals in an hour than you would making 50 phone calls. Let, let's just be honest about it. Memphis Grizzlies forward Matt Barnes said today that he went to his ex-wife's home to check on his six-year-old twin sons and not to confront New York Knicks coach Derek Fisher. 
Barnes told ESPN that he was at his home in Marina del Rey around 10 p.m. Saturday when he got a text from his son Carter that immediately concerned him. Barnes said he also spoke to his other son, Isaiah, and was concerned that his boys were uncomfortable that another man was at the home of his ex-wife, Gloria Govan. So he drove there to check on the situation. The situation then escalated, and though he declined to comment on the specifics of the altercation because of potential litigation, Fisher, Derek Fisher, the coach of the Knicks, then told reporters today that he had spoken to team president Phil Jackson about the incident but declined to provide details of the conversation. When asked about his relationship with Barnes, he said he was done talking about it directly and you would have to go through his legal representation. Well, Ohio State freshman Jaquan Lyle spoke with an NCAA investigator this week about his recruiting visit to Louisville in June of 2013 and confirmed the gist of allegations involving paid escorts during his trip to the school, a source with knowledge of the NCAA's investigation told CBS Sports this morning. The allegations were made in a book published last Friday called Breaking Cardinal Rules, Basketball and the Escort Queen. Matt Norlander reports. There's a book coming out, and in it, it's co-authored by a woman, a madam, who claims that a person named Andre McGee, who was a former graduate assistant turned director of basketball operations at Louisville, and he had that title from 2010 to 2014, the book alleges that McGee helped facilitate prospective Louisville players, meaning recruits, and active Louisville players to be entertained via paid escorts during their time at Louisville, whether it be on official visits or during their time as students. The book and the co-author, the woman who is making these allegations, claims to have text messages, ample amounts of them, as well as pictures with Louisville players or prospects with these women. It's a huge story. Obviously, these are major NCAA violations. Now, Louisville's athletic director, Tom Jurich, and its head coach, Rick Pitino, were very quick to respond late Friday as both of them held press conferences separately to address the issue. Jurich didn't say too much aside from being mind-blown from these allegations, period, and Pitino was much more forthcoming in what he's been able to discover. Frankly, he said, I've talked to 15 of my former assistants, GAs, I've asked them if they had any sort of idea that this even could have been remotely happening. All of them denied having any premonitions about this. Pitino did not outright deny that this had happened. He was more just blown away and quote-unquote heartbroken that this could have possibly happened. He didn't say it happened, didn't say that it didn't happen. He also added that he has asked Andre McGee about this, and McGee has outright denied it to him. Is this surprising to anybody? Powell writes that she took four escorts at the request of former Louisville staff member Andrew McGee to do a show for a new recruit named Jaquan Lyle. Lyle, just a couple of weeks after his visit, committed to Louisville, but later decommitted He subsequently planned to play at Oregon, but ultimately landed at Ohio State. And when asked about the situation, an Ohio State spokesman said they did not feel that Lyle did anything wrong and that he was being academically eligible for the upcoming season. Well, we've got high school football coming up for you on UltimateSportsTalk.com tomorrow night. The Waynedale Golden Bears will be in Northwestern to take on the Huskies. We'll be on the air with Golden Bear Rewind beginning at 6, 6.30 with the PNC Bank pregame show, and then at 7 o'clock with the kickoff. Be sure to join Pat Mitchell and I with all the action tomorrow night then from West Salem, Ohio. And then on Monday night, Mark Donahue and I, two more weeks to go with the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. We'll be bringing up what we think the award winners for the Indians and the Reds and Major League Baseball. We'll be giving you our predictions on those. That's Monday night at 9 o'clock here on Ultimate Sports Talk. And then next Thursday night at 7, I'll be back on the air with another Ultimate Sports Talk show. Be sure to join us then. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell, our producer of tonight's show. But most of all, our thanks to you for listening. Don't forget next Thursday night at 7 with another Ultimate Sports Talk show tomorrow night with high school football, Wayndale at Northwestern. That kicks off at 7 o'clock. 
Until then, thanks for joining us here tonight, everyone. I'm Dave Mitchell. Have a good week, everybody.